Uh, I want you to imagine it's 2008, okay? 2008, <clears throat> you're sitting in a movie theater, you just finished watching Iron Man, okay? You've sat through two hours and six minutes of cinematic genius. Uh, you've watched Tony Stark uh, build an armored suit to escape his captors in Afghanistan. He's brought it over to the United States and he's using it, putting it to use fighting crime. The movie is over, the credits start to roll, you get up from your seat and then you notice that nobody else is leaving. You look around and they're all sitting there watching the credits. They watch the, the cast roll by and then the crew starts to roll by, the directors and producers and then the special effects people and the sound effects people and then the key grips and the best boys and they get to the very end of the credits and there's an extra scene. There's this scene and Nick Fury shows up at Tony Stark's apartment and tells him all about the Avengers initiative. It's really the scene that kicked off the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe and it happened when the movie, you thought the movie was over. You thought the story was over. Well, Marvel didn't invent the post-credit scene. I want you to know that most movie experts credit early James Bond's films with the post-credit scene. Uh, a lot of them would have a scene after all the credits rolled where it said James Bond will appear again in and whatever the next movie was called. But if you're of a certain age, as I am, you may remember some classic movies that had great post-credit scenes. Movies like The Muppet Movie, if you've ever seen that one, uh, where... Uh, um, I think it's Animal gets up at the end and says, you're still here? You know, uh, there's movies like Airplane, where the passenger is still sitting in the taxi cab after the two-hour movie, if you remember that one. And then Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, a lot of movies had post-credit scene, but Marvel really elevated them to a, an art form because they used them for a couple of different reasons. One, they used them to tie up any loose plot points that were left in the movie. But two, they used them to preview what was about to happen next. And so because of that, I think we can look at John chapter 21 as kind of a post-credit scene for the entire Gospels. Because the story has been told, the hero is one. In John 20, we see Jesus has been raised from the dead. He appears to his disciples. That story is over. The hero is one. But there's a couple minor plot points that we still need to tie up. And the author has to prepare us for what's going to happen next. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 21. It's hard to believe that it was back in January, 11 months ago, that we kicked off this study of the book of John as a church together. We decided we were going to do this. We called it Grow, and uh, week by week, we've been reading through the book of John, and now 11 months later, today, we're finishing up uh, the Gospel of John. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed reading through it at this pace. I loved in 2021 when we read through the entire Bible, but many of you said that was a little fast. It was a little much. I get it. I understand. When you read through one book over an entire year, you get the chance to kind of digest it bite by bite and morsel by morsel. And I think that's really good for our study habits. It's also good for us as teachers because what it means is that we have to address pretty much everything that's in every chapter, right? You can't just skip over something because if it's there and you're only doing a half a chapter in a week, you pretty much have to talk about it. And so uh, it's almost as if all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. You know what I mean? Um, but in case you missed last week, Paul announced that we're going to do this again next year. We're going to do it with the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to start that in late January or early February. And once again, uh, we're going to take most of the year reading through this book. And it's going to talk to us. It's going to teach us about how the early church was formed and how the good news of Jesus spread from Jerusalem until the ends of the earth. But for today, we finish up the Gospel of John. 
Uh, over the last two weeks, as we've read through this and studied, we've seen Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. He's given them their marching orders. He's infused them with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. Really, the story has been told, but there's one little plot point that really hasn't been tied together in a nice little bow yet. And just like how Marvel often puts other heroes in the end credit scene of one hero's movie, we're going to see that John is going to use his last chapter to tie up Peter's story. And so that's what we're going to see in John 21. We'll start with verse 1. It says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. So John begins by letting us know that these events took place after Jesus' initial appearances to his disciples in chapter 20. But this time he appeared to them by the Sea of Galilee. Now this is an important detail to make note of because Jesus, the Sea of Galilee is up here. Up here is where Peter and Andrew and James and John and some of the guys used to fish when they were fishermen up here in the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus originally appeared to his disciples after his resurrection down here in Jerusalem. So this is about 70 miles north. So it's important to keep in mind that John is going to tell us that. We learned last week that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared twice to his disciples in Jerusalem. Um, and John uh, tells us that this, uh, after this happens, there's going to be a fishing trip. It happens at the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles north. And John tells us there are seven men on this fishing trip. So here's the rest of the story, how it goes. Verse 3, Simon Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And uh, they said, we'll go with you. So they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, what you want to understand, Peter was a fisherman when Jesus met him, but Jesus called him out of that life. And he spent over three years traveling with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he traveled with him. He watched him teach and heal and helped him in ministry. And along the way, Jesus had kind of made Peter into his right-hand man. There were three men, Peter, James, and John, that were kind of Jesus' inner circle. And in fact, the plan was that Peter would be in charge of the church after Jesus left the earth. And clearly, Peter had some strong leadership qualities because when he said, I'm going out to fish, six other guys decided to go with him. And so uh, John tells us that when Peter says he's going fishing, these guys follow him, but their fishing life was supposed to be over because Jesus had called them out of that life into this life of doing ministry together. They'd all agreed to walk away from their careers a couple of years earlier. But then something happens when Jesus dies, uh, he's gone, and Peter doesn't quite know what to do with himself. In fact, all of these men apparently don't know what to do with themselves, so they go back to their old life. But they find that their old life isn't the same anymore. You know, they're, they're fishing all night, but they caught nothing. And I wonder if anything like this has ever happened to you. You know, in your walk with God, you have this big moment, this encounter with Jesus, and you start to follow him, and things are going really well, and you can't wait to open your Bible, you can't wait to get to church, and then something happens, and it's a disappointment, and it's hurtful, it's discouraging, and so you decide, I'm going to go back to my old life, but again, that's not the same anymore either. Like, I feel like this is where a lot of us find ourselves sometimes in our walk with God. Uh, we, we know too much to be happy again in our old life but we're too disappointed with God to continue to try to move forward. You know, for some reason on that day, years after laying down their nets, Peter decides to go fishing again and these six men go with him. And John tells us on that particular fishing trip, it was a bust that they fished all night and they caught nothing. Verse four goes on. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, 
but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Now, stop for a minute right there. Let me ask you this. Maybe you've noticed this as you've read through John. Why does Jesus constantly ask these questions that he already knows the answer to? Have you ever thought about this? We see this happen time and time again. And I I think sometimes when you're in a private conversation with God, maybe that happens to you too. I know it's happened to me. I'll be praying and then all of a sudden this question comes into my mind and I know God already knows the answer to that. But I think he wants to make us say it out loud. I think he wants to make us recognize the situation we're in. Like he, he wants us to be honest with ourselves. I think finding our way back to God starts with being honest with yourself and about yourself. You know, the first person you need to quit lying to if you're gonna find your way back to God is you. You, you have to be willing to admit things like this relationship is not making me happy. These parties are getting old. The, these drugs don't have the same effect that they used to have. I, I'm feeling empty. I, I don't like the person I've become. These videos I'm watching are really messing with my mind, messing with my mental health. He needs you to get gut level honest and say, I've been fishing all night and I've got nothing to show for it. So verse five, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. It's almost like these experienced fishermen are going, oh, the right side. Why didn't I think of that? Like we were only fishing off the left side. Uh, And then it says, then the disciple who Jesus loved, oh, when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. They throw the net off the right side of the boat and all of a sudden they've been fishing all night, haven't caught a single thing. Jesus tells them to do this one thing. They haul in so many fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is, which is whom? John. John says to Peter, it is the Lord. Now stop right there. I want to address something here because this is the second time we've seen this happen. uh, Chapter 20 and chapter 21. Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to somebody who knows him very well, but they don't recognize him. And then something happens that instantly they recognize him, right? Mary Magdalene in chapter 20, when Jesus said her name, he said, Mary, and immediately she recognized it was him. And here there's this guy on the shore. We're gonna find out he's about a hundred yards away and he's yelling out to them and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. So how does John immediately recognize this as Jesus? Well, to understand that, I wanna flash back a couple of years before this to a scene that happened in Luke chapter five. And this scene, what had happened, Jesus had been teaching to a large crowd on a hillside up in the same area near the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd got so big that Jesus couldn't effectively teach to them while standing on the ground. So uh, Peter and his crew had just finished fishing all night long and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus gets in his boat so he could teach to this crowd and teaches, tells him to push out to deep water. And so Jesus does that. He teaches to this crowd on the shore uh, from the boat. When it's over, he says, drop your nets in the deep water. And they do. And there's, here's what happens. Verse five, Luke five, five. Simon answered, master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full, they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John were there. Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. This is a a 
transformational scene in scripture where Peter, Andrew, James, and John are called to leave their fishing business behind and go follow Jesus and do ministry, fish for people, uh, to, to make disciples of men and women. That's what they're called to do. They leave their fishing nets behind and go do it. And it all happens because Jesus calls them to experience this large catch of fish. And so I think in this moment, what's happening is John's mind flashes back to the last time this happened. And he immediately realized that's not just some guy on the shore. Like that's not just some fishing genius. That's Jesus. It's the, and so he says to Simon Peter, it is the Lord. So here's what happens, verse seven again. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Now, this is uh, just a ridiculous scene really because Peter's in this boat. He's there with his friends. They're all disciples of Jesus. But as soon as he hears, that's Jesus, that's the Lord, what does he do? He stands up, forget the other guys, forget the boat, forget the net full of fish. I'm gonna jump in the water and swim to shore. Now, it's easy for us to assume that this is because Peter is so impulsive, right? We see that in all of scripture, that Peter, he's so impulsive, he's always doing stuff like this. And that's partially true. But I think if we look a little longer, we're going to see something that's deeper happening here. See, if you know Peter's story, you know he was one of the first five disciples that Jesus called. Uh, Down along the Jordan River, when they were following John the Baptist, Jesus called them uh, to follow him instead, and Peter does. He's one of the first five, and so he's been with Jesus for the entire three and a half years of ministry on earth. He eventually became one of Jesus's closest friends. Like I said, with uh, James and John, the three of them got to see things that nobody else got to see. They were really Jesus's inner circle. But I think in Peter's mind, all he can think about is not that three and a half years of ministry and the time he spent with Jesus, but he's thinking about the last few days of Jesus's life. See, there's this really pointed interaction in John 13 with Jesus and Peter. Jesus basically predicts Peter's betrayal of him. Peter, Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. I mean, Peter basically says, hey, even if all these guys desert you, I'm not going to desert you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny knowing me three times. And that's exactly what happens. In John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial. And uh, Peter is standing kind of by the side, looking and watching all this happen. And three times people approach him and say, you're one of his disciples. You're with Jesus. You're you're with that Galilean. And Peter says, no, I don't. And Jesus gets to see all this happen. Peter basically disowns his rabbi, his teacher, his, well, not just that, his, his Lord and his friend. This is the part of story that's unfinished. If Peter's gonna lead the church, he's first gotta repair this relationship with Jesus and even though Peter's the one that started it, Jesus is going to finish it. So back on the shore at the Sea of Galilee, John records this seemingly small but important detail for us in verse nine. He says, when they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, the the Greek word that's used here, if you're a Greek geek, by the way, you're gonna love today. We're gonna do a lot of Greek. Uh, If you're one of those people, it's like, why do you say I talk about Greek? I'm sorry, I don't do it all the time, but today there's gonna be a lot. But the Greek word for fire that's used here is the word anthrakia, which is a fire of coals. Now, the reason I bring that up, John is very specific about using that word and it's only used twice in the entire Bible. It's used once here in John 21. And the other time it's used is in John John chapter 18, um, which is where Jesus is on trial. 
Here's what happens, John 18, 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple, John, was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. But she asked him, you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you too? Peter replied, I am not. This is one of the times that Peter denied Jesus. And then look at verse 18. It says, it was cold and the servants and officials stood around an, an anthracia, a fire they had made to keep warm. This is the only other time in scripture that this word is used. And then it says, Peter was standing there also with them, warming themselves. Now, if you've ever been around a coal fire, there's something you know. It's got a special kind of smell. It's got a special kind of look. It's got a special kind of heat coming off of it, right? There's a sights and sounds and feels that are only true of coal fires. I hope you see what John is doing here. He's showing this, that Jesus is putting Peter back in that place in John 18. He's about to confront Peter's greatest failure from days earlier when he denied knowing Jesus. Peter has to be restored if he's gonna be the leader of the church. But first, Jesus needs to address that night when Peter denied him. Now, I have to think with those sights and smells that Peter's mind took him back to the last time he stood around a fire like that. Luke's gospel account tells us that Peter wept bitterly around a fire after he betrayed Jesus. He knew that he had failed Jesus in that moment and that meant he was probably disqualified from leadership in the church, certainly, but also just disqualified from being his follower and his friend. I promise you it's a memory he wants to forget, but Jesus is gonna bring it back up. He's inviting Peter into that moment around this coal fire for breakfast. And then after breakfast is over, Jesus addresses Peter directly. In John 21, 15, it says this, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. In other words, he says, Peter, do you really love me more than all these other disciples? Like you said, even if everyone else betrays me, you never will. Do you really mean that? Did you really mean that? Do you really love me more than all these men? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now there's a secret though that's hidden in this passage, again, that you don't see if you only read it in English. Uh, I'll, I'll describe for you, many of you know this, there are actually three words uh, in, that the Greek, in the Greek translation that are used in the New Testament for love. There's the word eros, E-R-O-S. It's a word for romantic love. It's where we get the word erotic, the English word erotic. There's the word uh, phileo. Phileo is uh, a brotherly love. It's where we get the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. It's not because it's a friendly place. I guarantee you know that if you've been there. Um, so there's eros, romantic love, phileo, which is brotherly love. And then there's the third word, this, this word called agape. And agape is the deepest, like richest kind of love. It's an unconditional love. It's the, the word that's often described to describe or used to describe God's love for us. And uh, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? What he asks him is, do you agape me? In other words, do you have this deep, unconditional love for me? And Peter answers back. He says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. I brotherly love you. So Jesus asked again, verse 16. Again, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
And then John 21, 17 says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But at this time he says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Simon, son of John, do you brotherly love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so that morning on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, around that fire of burning coals, bringing back all these memories, Jesus addressed Peter's greatest insecurities and failures, but we'll see here that he didn't do it to hurt Peter or to shame him, but instead to restore him. He wants to restore this relationship and reinstate Peter as a trusted leader and friend. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus had to ask him three times, do you love me? To restore the relationship. The first two times in verses 15 and 16, I think Peter is, Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to express his deepest love. Do you agape love me? But Peter responds with this lesser love. Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then finally in verse 17, Jesus uses the same word that Peter has been using all along. Peter, do you phileo me? What's happening here? Did Jesus finally give up and say, fine, Peter, be that way. I was giving you a chance to be close to me again, but if you just want to be friends, that's fine. That's your loss. Now, I don't think that's what's happening here. And I don't think that Peter loved Jesus less than Jesus had hoped or wanted. I'm guessing that what's happening here is that Peter is so down on himself that he was afraid to set himself up for failure again. He knows if he tells Jesus, I agape you, I love you unconditionally, then when things get hard again, he's gonna have to live up to that expectation. And really, that's the story of Peter's life. If you read Peter's story in the gospel, his entire life through Jesus's ministry is him trying to live up to his own expectations or expectations that he thinks that Jesus has for him. He's, he's really got this problem with self-sufficiency. Peter has this recurring need to prove himself to Jesus over and over and over again. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the first time that Jesus ever hints to his disciples that he's going to die. Peter says, no, Lord, it doesn't have to happen that way. You know, and Jesus said, Jesus rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls his friend Satan. Uh, and then in John 13, when Jesus bent down to wash the disciples' feet, Peter kind of pulls away from him and says, no, you'll never wash my feet. Yeah, I'm not gonna let you serve me like that. Peter's like trying to prove his self-sufficiency. In John 18, when Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the guards. Jesus has to rebuke him again and tell him to put his sword away. And then even in this moment on the Sea of Galilee, Peter finds out it's Jesus. He leaves his buddies behind in the boat. He jumps overboard. He starts swimming to shore. There's no indication that he gets to shore before the guys in the boat. They're all paddling. There's six guys paddling in this boat and Peter's swimming alongside of it. You know, they're probably looking down at him going, hey, wanna ride? I mean, you can come with us. We're all, we're all going to the same place. But no, Peter has to show that he's the man. He's got to get in the water and say, I'm going to be the first guy there. And when he gets there, he brings Jesus some of the fish that he caught that Jesus really caught. Jesus didn't even need the fish. If you read the story, by the time Peter gets to the shore, he's already got fish on the fire. But Peter has to show his worth over and over and over again. But that's not Peter. I mean, that's, that's, Peter has to prove himself. And, and I know that Peter has to prove himself because often that's how I feel too. I have to prove myself. A lot of times I feel the same way as Peter. I believe that Jesus has forgiven my sins, 
But if we're honest, deep down inside, I struggle to think that Jesus loves me with an agape kind of love. And it's not because he's not able to. I believe he's able to. It's because I feel like I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I feel like I don't measure up that kind of love from Jesus. And so like Peter, it's easy for me to take the easy way out and try to settle for a lesser version of love from Jesus because I know me and I know in my mind there's no way I can measure up to that agape love that Jesus has for me. You know what? I would bet real American dollars that I'm not the only one in this room that feels that way. I think many of us find ourselves right where Peter is here and we can't help but wonder if it isn't why John recorded this story with this level of detail, because he knows that Peter's story is our story. I mean, come on, don't we all struggle with going back to old patterns and habits we had before we knew Jesus? I know I do. Don't we all struggle to accept the perfect sacrifice of Jesus's life for our perpetual sinfulness? I know I do. I often think, I know Jesus has forgiven my past sins, but what about the ones I'm going to commit tomorrow? Don't we all struggle to embrace the deep mystery of God's agape love for us that he has expressed through Jesus? I do. But it makes me wonder, like, why on the third time he asked Peter, does he change the question? Why does Jesus then eventually go from, do you agape me to do you phileo me? I don't know. <laughs> That's the answer. I don't know. But I do have an opinion. I do have a thought. And my thought is, I wonder if Jesus isn't using this moment to meet Peter right where he is. Like if Peter's not willing to come all the way to Jesus and say, I agape you, Lord. I wonder if Jesus isn't saying, you know what? I'm just going to meet you where you are right now. Look, at, look again at verse 17. I want to show you something else that I found fascinating in this verse. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Okay, one more lesson in Greek here. Peter, when he's responding, he uses the word know twice in this sentence. You know all things. You know that I love you. But he uses two different Greek words. John uses two different Greek words to capture what Peter's saying. He says, you know all things, and the word that he uses here the first time is the Greek word edo, and it means to perceive, to know by perceiving. He's basically saying, Jesus, you see all things. You're very perceptive. You can tell what is happening all around you. You know all things because you see them, you perceive them. But then he says, you know that I love you. And here, the second time, he uses the word gnosko. And gnosko is a very deep and intimate form of knowing. In fact, it's a word that's often used in the Jewish culture as a euphemism for making love. If you've ever heard somebody say they know them in the you know someone in the biblical sense, that's the word gnosko. It's a very intimate form of knowing. And so he's basically saying, Lord, you perceive all things. You know deep down in the depths of my heart that I love you. So what, here's what's happening, I think. Peter's been working really, really hard to show his value to Jesus. He wants to show that he's an important part of the team. Uh, throughout his gospel account, John has documented a pattern of pride and insecurity and self-reliance in Peter's life that finally comes to a head in chapter 21. So when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's not trying to shame him for his failures or question his love and devotion. I think Peter's trying to help, or Jesus is trying to help Peter understand that he doesn't have to earn his love and devotion. 
Instead, I think Jesus is trying to help him see, I love you for who you are, not what you can offer. That the most important thing that you can do, Peter, is rest in this agape love that I have for you. So I just hit pause right there and asked a really difficult question. Do you ever have a time forgiving yourself for past mistakes? I mean, I do that. Do you ever try to make up for those mistakes by trying to be better so that you can in some way earn your own righteousness? That's me. You find yourself working hard to impress other people to prove to yourself and to them how valuable you are? I do that sometimes. Do you do things that make you look good or feel good about yourself to try to impress God? Yeah, me too. And that's why I said Peter's story is our story. And personally, I find it fascinating to discover that John's gospel account ends by, by showing us this, that how Jesus modeled the message of the gospel to his friend Peter so that their relationship could be restored. See, because the gospel of Jesus is not rooted in self-sufficiency. In fact, it's the opposite. You can really only understand and accept the gospel when you realize you have nothing to offer Jesus. You have nothing to bring to the table but your own sinfulness. It's really when you become powerless is when the good news begins. It, it, it starts when we acknowledge our sins and shortcomings and admit our failures and flaws that have separated us from God. And just like Peter, I believe that Jesus will meet you right where you are. But just like Peter, it might require having a really difficult conversation about a memory you'd rather not revisit. You know, for Peter, that took place around a fire of coals and for you, it could be at a frat house or a bar. Maybe it's at a meeting room at work or the hallways at school or even in the privacy of your own home. Wherever it is, I believe Jesus is willing to meet you there, not to shame you or to rake you over the coals for your failures, but to help you understand his agape love for you. I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired John to close out his gospel this way with Peter's story of restoration because I think it helps us see and understand Jesus' love for us in a very real and very tangible way. And so like Peter, when, when life blows up, we feel the pull to go back to our old ways, how we were before we knew Jesus. And like Peter, we struggle with letting our failures define us. And when we try to make up for it by being self-reliant, we just realize that we've been fishing all night with nothing to show for it. But here's the good news. Jesus wants to do for you what he did for Peter. He wants to be the one that comes into your life and rebuilds that relationship. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. Jesus has come to offer forgiveness through his death and a brand new life through the power of his resurrection. We accept that life. We admit that you're powerless and come and rest in his deep and transformational, unconditional love. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I'm so thankful for the story and for how gentle Jesus is with Peter in this moment and just asking this question three times and really getting him to admit exactly where he is. Lord, I think for some of us, we just need to, that's, our, that's gonna be our next step is we just have to admit where we are. Just have an honest conversation. Say, here's where I am, Jesus. Come meet me here. And Lord, I know that you will give your deep, transformational, unconditional love to us whoever we are, whatever we've done. Your story shows that. And so, God, as we, even as we respond in this song, as we sing here, as we leave this place, as we go and do whatever we've got planned for our afternoon, and then we go, go to work tomorrow or to school tomorrow, God, would you continue to remind us 
of your agape love for us, that all we can do is bring nothing to the table and rest in your unconditional love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.